0: Come in.
1: Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm
0: late to the Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work.
1: It's Employee of
0: the Month with Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus.
1: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Employee of the Month. And on this episode, I sat down with Kevin McDonald, who was part of Kids in the Hall, which was a fabulous and fun sketch comedy show. They were a little, for lack of a better word, feral. Speaking of feral, I'm hosting a, a storytelling show August 19th in New York, if you're around, called Slightly Feral, and back to Kevin McDonald. Kevin McDonald has his own podcast now, Kevin McDonald's Kevin McDonald Show. He also does a bunch of voiceovers and we speak about that as well. But it was really neat to talk to someone who worked his whole life but was part of a collaborative team and is now more on his own and to talk about what that's like. I really, really enjoyed hearing like how he's reinvented himself, um, including moving to Winnipeg, Canada. So I am sitting with the one and only. Yeah. Kevin McDonald. And I say that as a joke because there are so many Kevin McDonald's. Um, that, I, 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 uh, that you
0: know? I was at a party once. Sorry, I always feel like leaning. I was at a party once uh, in the 90s, and um, uh, some guy tugged my uh, jacket, and he, uh, I turned around, he was a little tiny guy, and he said, Hey, I'm Kevin McDonald too. And he was the president of the Canadian Monkeys fan club.
1: The Monkeys, the band or Monkeys in general?
0: Uh, the band. <laughs> the band. I, you know what? I assumed it was the band. I there could it was be a,
1: a mammal club. A, a president
0: of a fan club of Monkeys in general. That's pretty hilarious.
1: Like, if you look at it from my perspective, monkeys monkeys the band had a far shorter career of illustrious hits whereas there's a lot of monkeys you can look at and be like oh
0: you know i never looked at it your way before but uh <laughs> well, that's true i was a kid i was like four or five when monkeys came out so i sort of loved them and um I th- they had great songwriters and michael nesmith was a great songwriter and he was uh uh he had a great solo career and he did elephant parts which is like uh, that invented videos that weren't from movies uh, and it was like comedy sketches so i'm sort of a fan of the monkeys so i and uh, kevin mcdonald had a good talk at that party
1: i remember watching you on hbo and the joy like that's what i felt from watching oh, right, improv right. comedians and i guess coming from stand-up myself it seemed like you guys had a lot of joy i'm curious do you still feel that now when you perform
0: well there's definitely more joy in a group Dave Foley and I have been friends since we were teenagers, and then we met the others a year or two later.
1: You met Dave when you were at Second City?
0: Yes, at workshops. I was 19, and he was 17.
1: Okay, oh, so he's much younger. Okay, I'm
0: just kidding. (laughs) Well, he's the baby of the troop. We're like, I'm the second youngest, and the next one's a year older, the next one's a year older than that, the next one's a year older than that, but Dave's like two years younger than But I was uh, there for a year, and Mike Myers was my friend. He was a teenager. He was also two years younger than me. He left because Second City, he was the youngest person to be hired for Second City except for Catherine O'Hara.
1: Who's fantastic.
0: Uh, well, I'm going to in a couple weeks. Uh, I'm t- pointing to where Toronto is. I don't know if Toronto uh, The Second City Benefit. They're they're doing a benefit for Dave Thomas of Second City. His, uh, not for him. For his nephew who uh, had a snowmobile accident. And so they're having a, a thing. And Marty Short's going to be there. He's going to host. He's going to do Jiminy Glick. Um, Rick Moran is going to be there. So they're going to do um,
1: Rick Bob and Doug McKenzie.
0: Yeah, he doesn't perform anymore. But yeah. for Dave Thomas, he will. Everyone's going to be there. Um, Joe Flaherty, Catherine O'Hara... Andrea Martin, Eugene Levy, who's sort of my favorite.
1: Okay, so the thing I envy most about all—I can't envy the sheer talent. I can't because I get so much joy from it as someone watching and inhaling it. Um, But I do envy the love. It seems like maybe that's me just projecting onto
0: the love of the group again. Yeah,
1: like yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. We love each other. Like the kids in hall love each other. Can we speak about us? Like. Brothers, only because we're all males, but not in the phony sense, like the true sense. Yeah. Brothers fight. Then they go to a bar, and the brother you just said, I hated you, to is being beaten up. You go and you fight for him. I'm a coward. I would never get in a fight. Yeah. But uh, it's that kind of brotherly. Not love. in a good fight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> good. But we love each other, and we're nicer to each other now that we're older, which, which is nice. But there's a joy. know, yeah, I'm going to finish the joy thing. There's a joy... Uh, like before a uh, stage show, the kitchen hall, in the sense that we're together and I feel less lonely. You always feel a little lonely before you go on stage and with your group. Uh, but, but with them, you don't feel And on stage, you don't feel lonely at all. In my podcast, uh, the, the, there's great young guys producing and I love them. But I've known them for a year. We're not brothers yet. And, um, and except for tonight, they don't really perform with me. Um, I feel more lonely.
1: I've heard you and Dave Foley um, refer to yourselves as punk rock um, <laughs> and I wanted to know what, what that meant Sad and maybe you can give an example of, of what that was like to be the punk rock sketch group.
0: Um, I think at the beginning it sort of meant only knowing three chords. Uh, <laughs> we were 19 and 20, but doing the most that you can out of three chords. As we learned more chords and became more of a jazz band, it was, uh, it was more about the attitude, which was like losing on purpose. Um, Stopping sketches every now and then tell the audience uh, this was a bad sketch and then we were failing and going back to the sketch. And um, uh, that kind of attitude, sort of breaking the rules of sketch comedy whenever we could.
1: What were the rules that you wanted to break?
0: The first one I think of right away is very uh, simple. Um, We had a show, a state show before we had a TV show. Uh, the one that sort of eventually gets discovered every Monday night at a club in Toronto called the Rivoli. The guy who was sort of uh, producing the show for a while, till finally he couldn't take us anymore, couldn't believe like there was a little backstage and he wanted us to stay there before the show. He had this mystique between the audience and the, and we would just sit around and like, we would be wherever we wanted, like where the audience was. We, we we would talk to them and that like the even that was the simplest rule drove him crazy that that we broke that that for around and we did it without thinking and stuff like that and we would yell at the bartender in a comical way. Uh, Like, like if it was funny, we would yell at the bartender, and he yelled back. Um, Like I said, stopping the show, once we, uh, we did a a scene at Theatre Sports called, um, it was a parody of, we asked for a suggestion, they said Jaws, and it was uh, by the Harbour Fund in Toronto, and there was um, a pool uh, and, like like a fountain, a fountain up to your knees So we brought the whole audience uh, Out to the fountain and we got in the fountain and, and we started swimming around And then we asked the audience to come in the fountain And not everyone did, but about 40 people Like rolled up their pants and, um, and came into the fountain with us And there were complaints, again from the theater sports organization That we couldn't get people wet And that, that the theater uh, would probably be angry When they found out that we got people in their fountain What,
1: what is the dynamic like now?
0: We progress socially Like I say, um, we're nicer to each other. I read a quote 10 years ago on Camper Van Beethoven. Do you remember Camper Van Beethoven? One of my favorite bands of the 80s. They, made, they had to come back 10 years ago. They were being interviewed and the reporter asked the violin player, uh, you guys were famous for fighting. Do you fight now? And He said, uh, when you're 20 and you're in a band, it's your job to be an asshole. But when you're over 40, um, you learn that the work is more important and gets done, uh, if you're sort of politer with each other, it gets done better. And I think we're sort of like that. That progresses. The comedy hasn't started to regress yet we're still like our new sketches were still pretty good but that's like inevitable that's going to happen the Rolling Stones still tour but how many great songs have they written lately do I hear the single they wrote a few years ago was pretty good I don't know
1: but that's the hardest part I think also is when you've had success at a young age I mean I, I think that the enormous pressure on oneself Um, And there's two different kinds. There's the internal one of saying, I don't know if I'm ever going to write a sketch as good as that one.
0: Yeah. And then
1: the external one of, you know, people treating you differently when you're doing so well and now feeling like I miss that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The trick is not to miss it Um, because this podcast I've done um, tonight will be the ninth. I didn't write tonight's podcast. Uh, the producers did. It's it pretty good. It's better than the one we did last night, which I wrote. And uh, there are four or five sketches that were new and were pretty good. And now, for some reason, it just I'm talking myself into the fact that, oh, that's it. You've written your last great uh, comedy sketch. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I'm starting to feel that now. Uh, but I'm not sad about it. And first of all, I'm not sad about it, A, because I think I could be just making that up. Yes. And B, if it's, it's true, if it's true, I had a good run, and I'll I'll still do I'll collaborate more than with, with the strong sketch writers, like my producers who wrote a good sketch tonight.
1: How do you return to the same well that you've been drinking from, from a long
0: time? I know, time? I know. There's some inspirations. Bob Dylan uh, still does his like great albums. He had like the bad '80s where I think he talked himself out of the fact that he could write then f- uh, from 89 on he's done like uh, mostly great albums and his great album a few years ago that he wrote he was 71 I think it's like, one of my only favorite albums of his I'm a Bob Dylan fan Frank Lloyd Wright did his best work in his 60s and 70s that's the work that he's really famous for yeah so there, there is inspiration and I think I could just it's just like a decision I made one day I was writing a sketch like, I have a million times go, oh, it isn't as good as I thought it was. And then for some reason it clicked, wait, you're 56 now. You must have lost it. But I had the same feeling at 24, because you don't write Taught all great right. sketches. Right. So, so I probably have talked myself into it. But, but, but sooner or later, I, will I be Bob Dylan in 71, write one of my greatest uh, sketches? I, I, I don't know. I doubt it. But um, now that I think about it, I, that is silly. I don't have that block.
1: Now um, that you teach,
0: what do you teach? I teach uh, how to write sketches. There's a few little, a few different workshops. The one tomorrow that I'll be teaching will be uh, how to write through improv. Like the kids from that's how we first started. We wrote, we, we had ideas, one line premises, and then we uh, talked about uh, how we could do it, and then we put it up on its feet and just wrote the scene through improv, like through stops and starts, um, which was fun. Then later we learned how to actually write right when we had a TV show. And so my other workshop is learning how to uh, how to write write, but it's um, but it's more than just a write write workshop. It's a uh, how do you put on a sketch show workshop. We write it, and then the next day we rehearse it, and then that night we perform it.
1: And how many of the things that you're teaching to your students do you actually still do, and how many are just sort of unconscious?
0: Uh, a lot of them are unconscious. I think. Okay. I think a lot of them. Uh, it took like seven or eight workshops for me to fully develop. Uh, the things that I teach now, because it was all s- subconscious, and yeah. to articulate, you need to
1: articulate it, it, to articulate
0: yeah. it. Because in a way, I'm like, if the kids in the hall came to one of my workshops, they would say, "We never said that." We, we, we never said the two S's, surprise and satisfy. We never said that. Um, because it's a workshop, I know what we were doing, but it, it was a feeling that we had and, and an instinct that we had. But I can't teach instinct. So um, I find articulation for it. I find wording for it. and then. Uh, but yeah, they, they would watch the whole workshop and go, we didn't, we didn't do that. We never said, but we did. I just I put a name to it.
1: So you met Dave Foley and Mike Myers around the same time?
0: Yes. What was your initial responses to those two fellows? Well but first Mike and I we, we did a six uh week we signed for a six week workshop, and then we kept doing it for a year. It was my age, everybody else was over thirty five, we were teenagers, so we hung out We were shy, we didn't volunteer. Then the beginning of the third week, Mike said to me, You know what, Kevin? We paid a fortune for this workshop, $60, and I'm going to volunteer. And then he volunteered, and I started volunteering after that, but the first time he came on stage, I had no idea... I grew up in Mississauga, Ontario, which is 30 miles away from Toronto. I was in Toronto now. And in Mississauga, I had this comedy gunfighter theory that I was the fastest gunfighter, that I was the funniest person I knew. Not the funniest person I'd seen in movies or TV, of course, but the funniest person I knew live. And then he shattered that in, like, a three-minute improv that he did. And he was the first guy I thought that he might be funnier than me. And then we became sort of fast friends and we tried to start a trip. He sort of intimidated me because he was sort of very intellectual and like so, so brilliant. The thing about me, uh, when I was 19, I was a lumpy potato of potential uh, that had to develop. He was who he was at 17. Like that's the amazing thing about Mike Myers. And as good as he always was, as great as always he sort of had it at 17. There was more things for him to learn, but he was there. And then, okay, the first time I meet Dave Foley, we were we didn't know each other, and everybody was broken into twos. Into um, uh, and we did the mirror exercise where we mirror each other's movements. And we hadn't talked, but we started doing funny movements. And then we slowly crawled to the floor. And then we got in the fetal position. And then right away we broke the rule without even talking to each other. We started crawling outside till we were on the sidewalk. And I remember through the window the teacher was like mad at us, tell, like uh, motioning us angrily to, to to come in. So right away we were rebel comedians, punk comedians. And then. At the end, everybody was put in three groups. I did an improv, which was pretty funny. He did an improv that was really funny. Uh, and afterwards, I went up to him. I just lost Mike Myers. I couldn't lose another one. I didn't know his name yet. And I said, do you want to join my troop?" I didn't have a troupe. And he said, yeah, yes, of course. And I learned his name. And then I got my friend Lucha. We have members enough members for a troop now. I met this guy. He's as good as Mike Myers. And, and, and that's... So my impressions... They were both sort of brilliant. It was a lucky time. This was like Toronto in the 80s. There was Mike and uh, Dave Foley and I and Norm MacDonald. Oh, yeah. I, and people that haven't made it that are brilliant like Sean Cullen. Uh, it was a magical time. It was like Liverpool, uh, like in the early 60s. I'm mean, always I liking it too.
1: I've heard you say that there are two kinds of comedies you enjoy. Yes, yes. Um, and one was... Imaginative, yes. And the the other, can you talk about that one?
0: The other is true. I always compared to, and I probably did when you read it. Um, uh, but I like uh, my favorite artist of all time is John Lennon, and I always compared to John Lennon. John Lennon could write, "I am a walrus," which is total imagination. Uh, and then three years later, he he did the best album of all time, and the last song is so brilliant. Where he goes, I don't believe in uh, Zimmerman. I don't believe in Beatles. And he goes through all the lists, and the last one is I don't believe in Beatles. And then the music stops for a second. I just believe in me, Yoko and me. And like it's uh, that's that's the two forms of art. I think there are. There's probably maybe more that I don't know. And those are the two I'm most interested in. But uh, out of the two, I'm more interested in uh, I just believe in me, Yoko and me. Like uh, like like talking about yourself. If you get comedy, if you're a comedian, if, uh, the John Casey, uh, John's Casey, get music out of that. But in my case, if you get comedy out of that and you're sort of speaking the truth about yourself, uh, this sort of becomes thicker comedy. It's still comedy. Comedy's my number one. I, I, I'm just, in a way, I just care about the laughs. But if I say a little bit about what's wrong with myself or what's right with myself or whatever, um, I think it's thicker comedy. And God forbid if someone thinks, oh, I'm like that. Maybe I should stop being like that. <laughs> and they laughed. Laughing is the most important. I, that, I think that's amazing. Though, I also love I Am the Eggman Goo 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 Joob.
1: You know, you've talked a lot about the Daddy Drank sketch yes. and how that sort of developed into Hammy and the Kids. Yes,
0: absolutely. As, as your I one-man show. Absolutely.
1: What was it like having people respond to the way you're presenting your life and how you lived it?
0: That's a good question. First of all, it was a thing I had to write, but I was also afraid of writing it in a sense I wasn't afraid of, uh, like, the, the the truth or the hurt of it or the confession of it. It was more shallow than that. I was a little afraid of being another comedian doing a one-man show about his drunk dad Uh, because I I know that's what one-man shows usually are. But I threw that aside pretty quickly um, because I had to write it. Yeah. I I sort of had to write it. Um, So I forgot about that. And then in the relationship with the audience to the piece um, has been or was... Always positive. It's like people go through different things. There are people, there have been a few people that after the show are crying saying they had a dad like that. It was good to be able to laugh about it, though they're crying. There was Bobcat Goldwaite He came in the show with the same fear that I did. He's a friend of the kids in huh? Um And so the first thing he thought, of, wow, that wasn't hokey at all. Yes. <laughs> yes. So um, that made me feel uh, really, really happy. Uh, this really isn't answering your question, but here I go. The last time I did it in Montreal, uh, yeah. just for last festival, there's a part of my show where I talk about how my dad became less of an alcoholic at the end. He just had three beers a day um, and whatever else is in the piece. And after the show, uh, and my dad had died, I guess, three years earlier. Uh, so after the show, um, uh, me and Craig Northey from the Odds, Canadian super band, who was the, the, the playing guitar and uh, singing with me in the uh, one and a half man show, I guess, uh, we're we're leaving. Uh, and then a guy who was pretty young in his early 30s said, said, um, "I didn't know that. I just pie- pieced this together, Mister McDonald." But I was a bartender at a bar a few years ago, and there was a a man who came. He he only had two or three beers, like you said. He said he was a dental equipment salesman, and his son was a a famous comedian in a sketch troupe. And he said he was so proud of him. Um, And, of course, my dad never told me that. And uh, (laughs) I'm going to cry, which is weird. Uh, And then uh, the funny thing is that um, Montreal was having some parade. They always had parades. And as soon as he said that, a parade started... (laughs) Amazing. Don't cry. You're not going to cry, because I'm crying.
1: What was your impression of stand-up? And it's really a loaded question. I really want to ask about your relationship with Jerry Seinfeld.
0: <laughs> he was totally in charge at that point. Larry David had left. So he, was, he told the director what to do. Though He was a very good director. Yeah, um, yeah, he told each of the actors. Um, he gave them notes. Except for Julie Louise Dreyfus. He was always happy with her performance. But the other two, like he, he would do, he was sort of in a nice way, in a total nice way, but it's just that he was in charge. And then when rehearsal was done, he went to the writer's room and was in charge of the rewrites. Like, uh, and that was kind of neat to see an icon be a workaholic, which I think is probably normal, regular, but it's the first time I witnessed it with my own eyes. Um, and that was um, that was kind of uh, cool. And he was uh, he was always very nice,
1: he was very nice, because I remember reading that you... Oh, I had that uh, one story,
0: yes. <laughs> yes,
1: that you improvised a line.
0: Yes, and he said, uh, no.
1: <laughs> so wait, so what was
0: that? But like- he was mostly really nice.
1: <laughs> what was that like switching from an environment where your opinion is wanted... Right. ...and then all of a sudden you're acting...
0: Yes, and for someone else to stay. Well, that was a mistake I made because people were coming up with lots of ideas. I am, This makes me sound like a showbiz jerk, but I always say you got to get the gig, which means understand... I do not mean get the job. I mean understand the gig. You have to understand what you're doing. The kids in the hall... It, it's all five of us we're in charge we could even tell like our director what to do but by the time we got John Blanchard you know, the greatest sketch director ever we wouldn't dare but uh, way before that we would tell everybody what to do and that was that gig Jerry Seinfeld that was a one-off mistake I knew the gig it's his thing and I, and I just listen to it I, I, and every TV show I do even if it's according to Jim I pretend that the script is great and I, I try to I did a bad bad movie with Dom DeLuise and um, we had a really, really who bad scene together. Who I love as a kid. I loved, like he was in the end and the 12 chairs and and, uh, and so much more. And um, we, I said, I don't know how to do this bad scene. And it, he taught me, it started to sound simple, but to hear from de Louise, it made it seem important. And he said, You've got to take it and pretend that it's Shakespeare. You've got to pretend that it's the best script ever, and then. Uh, though on the other hand, I see actors do that, and that's what that's why I think really, really great only really, really great actors can give horrible performances, because if they get a bad script or a bad director, um, they'll give all the powers they do to greatness to badness. So they'll be re- like my favorite actors of all time, Laurence Olivier and Charles Laughton, when they give a bad performance, and they're two of the greatest actors of all time, uh, or even Marlon Brando it's uh, truly horrible though I've never seen Meryl Streep because uh, she's sort of intellectual probably the others are probably instinct maybe yeah, but I, I, have you ever seen Meryl Streep be truly horrible
1: now I know what it's like to be asked a loaded question. Um, I've seen Meryl Streep in
0: some duds. She's been in duds, but has she ever been truly like her herself? I've never seen. I don't anything think I would even be herself. able to.
1: It's such a the real question for me there is like, would I be even able to decipher it? Is the emperor not wearing clothes? And I don't. I, to me, she is the emperor, so it, it would. Maybe be, that's what so I'm thinking so too. To me, she's always dressed.
0: But when I was a kid, I was <laughs> obsessed with uh, many things. But Charles Laughton, he was so amazing in so many movies um uh gave nuanced performances and i've just seen two of his his performance in spartacus and um advise and consent the political yeah. movie with henry Fonda, are brilliant then you see him in captain kidd meets avon and costello yeah. and he's way over the top and he's and he's horrible if that was the only thing i would seen him i would have thought that he was horrible and then, that's why i always think that um even though i i agree with dom de to a certain extent it excited me that he said that I, I think that's why sometimes a really great actress can be horrible
1: I was also bringing up Seinfeld because yes. you do this very funny <clears throat> bit about how you feel about observational
0: comedy oh right right. I, yeah, I, you, saw, you heard that on the podcast yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. well I, like I enjoyed when I hear it and you did say the words Fuck you, Jerry, Jerry Seinfeld. Seinfeld. Yeah, I don't really mean it, Jerry Seinfeld. It was just uh, I was on stage, and it's a good way to get a laugh. But um, yeah, it pretends to be a sneaky satire about uh, the observational comedy, but it's really about a guy falling apart on stage. Yeah, <laughs> a- and that's why I fall apart for a long time, and then when I bring it back, fuck you, Seinfeld. It gets a big laugh because people forgot. Oh, right, he was supposed to be doing a satire of ob- observational comedy, but then we heard this horribly long story, <laughs> um, hopefully funny, horrible long story about something horrible that is drunk dad which is mostly true
1: and it was also about the differences in different kinds of comedy right like there's yeah. also this like I in had... a sneaky way yes so now you are teaching a lot are you doing it for the love of teaching are you doing it for the money
0: anyone would say both but here I go both but it started off as a money thing because I moved to Winnipeg because uh, I met a woman um, uh, up there and then um, to start making money I started doing stand-up the thing I, I dread and the stand-up clubs I don't do very well um, because um, because as we've been talking about my stand-up is based on myself and when people came that were Kids in the Hall fans like the podcast yeah. it usually goes over quite well um, but it was the 10 o'clock show in San Francisco and people are going there because it's punchlines and it's a famous club and there are 30 um, I have trouble uh, I have trouble like, yeah. they don't boo me or anything but uh, but I don't get big laughs you, you I, would
1: not so, be the first comedian to talk about this yeah. and, <laughs> to be Martin Zach Galifianakis and Thank many you. others
0: there you go. And now Zach <laughs> right. is easy. He always uh, he always get his audience no matter where he performs. He yes. doesn't have to perform at clubs.
1: But they also tend to go more towards theaters.
0: Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, exactly. And especially now that they're big enough to do that, 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 that that's easy. And then from that, um, when that stopped, uh, I always had these theories about comedy. And somebody asked me to do a workshop at the Toronto Sketch Comedy Festival Paul, thank you Paul got, uh, one of the directors of the Toronto Sketch Comedy Festival and I, and I did it and it went well and I thought I enjoyed it I can't totally whore myself out so to make money in, in between acting jobs and, the, and selling scripts and stuff like that this is something that I enjoy um, so let's do that and then I started that and it is, it, it's, it's a thing I enjoy that I do for the money
1: my last question. So, like, as you're getting older as an actor, how much does finances, like, how do you deal with that question as to, like, picking, how do I survive financially, but also nourish myself creatively when I don't yeah. know how much time I have left?
0: It's funny, because after um, uh, Brain Candy, I said no to a few things I should have said yes to. Um,
1: because they didn't nurture you creatively? Because they didn't
0: nurture me cra- uh, creatively, uh, or so I thought. The, one of the movies I saw later was pretty <laughs> So it's hard to tell like the from a script because you don't know what the director has planned or, or even on paper it's hard to judge anything from paper so I learned that pretty quickly too uh, uh, I assumed it was the same kind of mediocrity of movies similar to it and it turned out not to be I, if I remember the name I would tell you because it's a good movie Someone in Someone's High School Reunion with uh, Romeo and Michelle yeah
1: yeah it did it was really good
0: it was really good yeah. yeah I made a mistake
1: well but that's partly did you know who the other actors were in it
0: I did not uh, I would have been excited if uh, because both uh, both of them were great and Lisa Kudrow was amazing and Lisa Kudrow is perfect timing by the way Lisa, and she well, was that's
1: what I was going to say is that like, like would it me. have been so great if all of those factors didn't come together who knows
0: that's true too because uh, um, I remember my friend Janine Graffalo she had a small part and, and she yeah. said uh, I'm doing a movie called Romeo and Michelle the high school reunion the, the script is so great uh, and I just turned it down <laughs> and that's why I started having doubts if I trust her she could read the script better she's sort of smarter that way uh, but um, so it depends what time you are in your life right now I have an ex-wife um, <laughs> who's I'm not against ex-wives or husbands this, this particular case I think I'm anyway way anyway, um, so uh so now i would say yes to, but i've been really lucky that i'm willing to say yes to anything uh i've gotten a lot of offers lately and they've all been sort of good great uh, what yeah, are they i just did a movie uh with um i forget his name i just said it yeah well bruce keenwood and um oh i'm so sorry he's gonna hear this and be so hurt i, I said your name four times yesterday John justin oh, please. justin uh bartha from uh, oh wow and um that was a good movie Uh, What's it called? It's called uh, Sorry for Your Loss. I was lucky enough to be in that great TV show, I forget the name of, with Jay Baruchel, um, Man Seeking Woman. Yes. That's a great show. Yes, Simon Rich. I just did the Invader Zim movie. Uh, I've been really lucky. that, uh, And I'm on a TV show. I have a guest part. Not a guest part. I have a, a recurring part as the math teacher in a Disney show called um, Walk the Prank, and it's pretty good because the guy who showruns runs it, who got me the part because i become friends with him, is um, um, the genius from uh, The Whitest Kids You Know. So the show it sort of has the Disney stuff that makes a Disney show, but also uh, he'll come to me between takes and go, uh, when she says that to you, go in a really dark place. And I thought, oh my god, you don't hear that in a Disney show. Uh, so I'm very lucky. The, the, the things I've, um, that I've uh, been asked to do are very uh, very good, but I am willing to do bad things because of my ex-wife.
1: <laughs> do you? You don't have kids.
0: I have stepkids. You
1: have stepchildren now. And
0: now in Winnipeg, yes.
1: And so, does that change things for you in terms of your working?
0: Yeah, sure. That uh, absolutely. How? Uh, I would uh, offer me bad things. I'll say yes, uh, but. I mean, there's some things, of course, I would say no, to. The show, uh, Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell. It's a fun show. The scripts are good. Nothing against the quality of the show. The show is great quality. But there was a scene uh, where, um, because it's about going to hell. uh, Every week, someone else goes to hell. And the people in there are like, it's an office um, like a workspace comedy, uh, which is fun, where Satan's the mean boss, which is funny. Yeah. But my character um, uh, did something wrong, so got diarrhea poured over on him. And I, and I said no to that. I'm sure it would have been chocolate, not real diarrhea, but because uh, I'm a little crazy and getting uh, messy and sticky. It was also part of feeling humiliated a bit. Because like you get poured with chocolate, and that's take one, and then they clean up and do it again, and then but when they get that take, then you have to be in chocolate uh, so you have to stay a bit because there's a scene after that where you're like still in the and I say chocolate who knows what it was black stuff and diarrhea it would be lumpy it would seem like diarrhea they would probably do really good special effects it's okay to have a little dignity even in showbiz yeah though nothing is okay it was a great script and it's a great show it it was more my problems
1: Kevin McDonald I'm gonna recommend everyone check out the Kevin McDonald
0: Uh, (laughs) she's gonna suggest uh, she's gonna recommend that that you check out Kevin McDonald's Kevin McDonald show
1: okay try to say it three
0: Times fast. Kevin McDonald's, Kevin McDonald's show, Kevin McDonald's, Kevin McDonald's show, Kevin McDonald's, Kevin McDonald's show. Fabulous. Kevin,
1: thank you so, so much. Thank you. you. That's it for this episode. Thank you, Rob Schulte, Nora Lynn, ACAS, and thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed this show, go to EmployeeOfThemonthShow.com. That's EmployeeOfThemonthShow.com. Um, If you want to recommend other people for the show and check out earlier episodes, you can go to iTunes, Acast, Stitcher, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And you can follow me at C-A-T-I-E Lazarus, Katie Lazarus, at Katie Lazarus, on the Twitter or on Instagram or Facebook or just weirdly around the house. It will not be weird for anyone. I'm Katie Lazarus. I will speak to you next week. Have a good one.